Amen. I'm going to ask you to remain standing. We talked last week about the value of standing to hear God's word read to us, and so we'll do that again this week. In the meantime, if there are any children who would like to go to Stepping Stones, which is our worship program for kids during the sermon time, you're free to go at this time. I'd like to ask you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, I'll be reading verses 12 through 17. Please give your careful attention to the word of God. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen. Please be seated. At our meeting this past week, the elders and the deacons spent some time discussing an article that appeared recently in Christianity Today. The article was called The Painful Lessons of Mars Hill. It was about the shocking, quick downfall of what had been a very doctrinally sound and dynamic, growing network of churches, which was started by one particular megachurch in Seattle, Washington. Earlier articles that I had read about the downfall of these churches had really focused upon the sins and weaknesses and flaws of the one charismatic pastor who started the movement in the original church. But what made this article, I think, in many ways more helpful to the leadership of our churches, and I'm sure many other churches, is that it kind of went beyond kind of the normal sins and failings of charismatic pastors and really took it down to the next level and said, what went wrong in the rest of the church? What went wrong in the rest of the structure of the leadership of the church? Because behind the charismatic past, there were many other leaders who were responsible for the spiritual well-being of those congregations. What happened at that level? The article digs into that and draws upon the insights that many of these men of God learned through this difficult experience. Let me read to you some of the quotes One of the leaders said that as the churches multiplied, quote, the driving motive became efficiency and growth, and those two factors began dictating church policy. Efficiency and growth began dictating church policy. Another leader said, this all began as a work of the Holy Spirit, but we quickly started to push harder and harder trying to accomplish it with human efforts. Bigger, better, faster, stronger. And those are things that every church can wrestle with. The leadership of every church can wrestle with to avoid taking a work of the Holy Spirit and turning it into a work of the flesh. One seminary professor and scholar 
making his observations on what happened there in Seattle and, and in that movement, he, made, he wanted to make the point that big churches and mega churches aren't wrong. It's not, it's not that, the, the, that that form of the church is wrong. He says, he says, I've been in churches, of course, where there was a controlling pastor with a controlling church culture. But, he says, I've been in a megachurch in the state of Pennsylvania that was as healthy as it could be. But that is because the pastor knew what he was doing in creating a culture of grace. And that was the phrase that stuck with me most from that article. The healthy churches exhibit a culture of grace. A culture of grace, what does that look like? Those are words to live by for any church leader. Work hard to make disciples and to build within the body of believers a culture that's characterized first and foremost by grace. Healthy churches aren't measured by their size. They're not measured by their budget. They're not measured by their facilities or their programs. Healthy churches are measured by the fruit, spiritual fruit that they exhibit the growth and maturity in the disciples who make up that body of believers. That's really what Paul is doing here in Colossians chapter 3. In the book of Colossians, he's addressing what false teachers are doing to the church, how false teachers are leading the church astray so that the church is becoming something other than a church, becoming, first of all, unhealthy, and then something besides being a church because of these false teachers. But in chapter 3, he turns to say, well, here's what the real thing looks like. This is a body of believers where God dwells and spiritual fruit are being born. Back in, in just before the section I read to you a moment ago, in verses 9 through 11, he says, You have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. He goes on to say, Christ is all and in all. When we talk about growing a healthy church, what we're talking about is the church as a whole, the church as a culture, taking on the personality and the image of Jesus Christ. That we as a culture in the church look like Christ, act like Christ, have the attitude of Christ. That's what health looks like. We've been looking these last couple of weeks at what real Christian fellowship is. A lot of confusion in the church, let alone in the world, of what fellowship really is. And so far, we've seen two things. First of all, we looked at 1 John chapter 1, and there we saw that the source of Christian fellowship is our union in Christ, our spiritual union in Christ, that we are in Christ. We are chosen in Christ. We are justified in Christ. We are adopted in Christ. We are sanctified in Christ. We will be glorified in Christ. And the fact that we are all united to Christ by faith, we are one with him, he is in us, we are in him. That gives us a deep source to our fellowship that is eternal and only grows stronger and stronger as he continues his work in the church. We share something profound and deep in common with one another that the world can't even begin to understand because we are all in Christ by faith. Secondly, we looked at Nehemiah 8 last week and we saw that when we talk about what fellowship looks like, how do you define fellowship? We said it has to be by the word of God. That the foundation for real fellowship among people who are in Christ together is the scriptures, the word of God. He has spoken. We have his book. We know what his will is for us and for all history. 
And so if we are a healthy fellowship, we said last week we have a hunger and a reverence for the Word of God. We understand the Word of God because we study it and feed upon it daily. And it produces real conviction of sin and repentance and transformation into the image of Christ. I think it's important that I point out here that we started by talking about what's the source of our fellowship, which is being in Christ together, and the definition of our fellowship, which is the Word of God itself, which defines what our fellowship is and what it looks like and how it operates. Because I didn't want to start with what churches tend to do when you talk about fellowship is what does fellowship look like? Because when you talk about what fellowship looks like, you're talking about the fruit of these things. What does a deep, profound commitment to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and a commitment to his word, what does it produce? That's when you get into the details of what fellowship really looks like, and that's what Paul's talking about here in Colossians 3. What happens when you drink deeply of the grace of Christ through his word? What kind of fruit does it produce? In other words, what I'm asking this morning is, what does a culture of grace or biblical fellowship really look like? It's interesting when Paul begins to talk about what our community, our sense of fellowship, our relationship with one another, what it looks like, he goes to clothing. In this chapter, he talks about putting off the old clothing of our old life outside of Christ and putting on a new kind of clothing. That seems like, you know, we're talking about something that goes to the heart, and that sounds like, sounds like something very superficial, but there really is a connection between your clothing and your heart, isn't there? We always dress in light of how we see ourselves, or at least how we want other people to see us. Our sense of identity determines what we wear. If you get up in the morning and you're going to go to work or go to school or go out into the community, you're going to put on clothing that reflects either how you see yourself or how you'd like to see yourself. And so people look at you and you say, here's a person who wants to look professional. Here's a person who wants to look hip or cool. Here's a person who wants to look stylish. Here's a person who wants to look casual. Here's a person who wants to look like he doesn't care what people think about what he looks like. Here's what a person looks like, you know, who wants to be seen as an athlete or a big fan of a certain sports team. Or here's what a person looks like who wants to project to the world that you're rebellious, that you're not part of the establishment or part of the main culture. All these things, we dress according to our sense of identity. And really, that's what Paul's saying here. Dress yourself in terms of how your attitudes and your actions, as you interact with the church and with the world, dress yourself spiritually according to your identity. That's what he says in verse 12. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. In those three words, you have a profound statement about the identity of a child of God. Chosen, holy, and beloved. You are deeply loved by the God who saved you. He chose you by grace alone. And you are holy, set apart to him. You belong to him, sealed by him forever. If that's really who you are, if that's your most important sense of identity, then dress yourself accordingly with your attitudes and your actions in your life. We talked about in Sunday school how the title of heirs of the covenant promises that was given to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament was transferred to the church in the New Testament. 
that we are the recipients. What's fascinating there is that as Paul talks about us as God's people being chosen and holy and beloved, he's using the titles that were given to Israel. The title's been transferred. We are the heirs of the promises. We are God's people. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, slave nor free. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Heirs to the promises given to Abraham. So if that's your identity, dress yourself accordingly. And you see there that it's a response to God's grace. Because God has chosen us, because he has given us these promises, because we are heirs, because we are so deeply loved and set apart, then we act a certain way or speak a certain way or project a certain attitude. Everything we do, even though these things are hard for us in in light of our sinful nature, everything we do is a response to his grace towards us. If he had not first redeemed us, first chosen us, first forgiven us, we would not even have the desire to change. And so here's what Paul tells us to put on. Here's what the church's culture of grace should look like. And the first thing he says is put on compassion. says there in the English, it says put on compassionate hearts. That's a way of putting into English kind of a phrase that we aren't comfortable with if it were were translated directly from the original Greek. In the original Greek, literally, it says, put on the bowels of compassion. Now, understand that when the writers of Scripture said that, and they use that phrase quite often, the bowels of compassion, when they said that, it was not a gross concept to them like it is to us. What they were trying to get at is that deep, part of your nature, that gut feeling, that, that kind of a, you, you know, it almost has this physical sense that deep inside your body, there's some center of your emotions, what we call that gut feeling. That's what it's getting at. And what he's alluding to, when the scripture writers say that, that we are to put on compassion, that sounds odd to us, because it is saying not just do good things, we'll get to that in a moment, for others in the church and in the world, but care about them deeply. Have that emotional reaction to seeing the needs of your brothers and sisters in Christ as well as the world. How do you put on an emotion? That's contrary to the way we think. But what he's saying is there are certain things that you can do so that you have deep compassion for your brothers and sisters in Christ. We are not passive in it. We don't just pray and say, Lord, you know, zap me with some emotion towards my brothers and sisters in Christ. There are things that we do that facilitate that kind of an emotional reaction to the needs of those in our spiritual family. Our concern for each other must not be cold and clinical and bureaucratic. It must flow out of an experiential knowledge of one another. And that takes work. It takes effort. It takes being willing to be uncomfortable, to talk about uncomfortable things, to deal with conflict, to spend time together in our extremely busy schedules. Fellowship takes time and involvement in order to develop real compassion. I spoke last week of a book named, uh, that's called The Connecting Church. It was written by a man named Randy Frazee. And in one of the chapters of that book, he addresses this issue He basically, what he does is he begins by describing what would sound very familiar to many of us, which is what he calls a typical suburban Christian family. 
husband and wife, two incomes, couple or three children, living in the suburbs. Now, I say in the suburbs because we lived in the suburbs for most of our adult life, but then we moved to State College, and things are different here. But I think it still applies in a large degree. And he, he just basically describes what that family life is like. And you, you know, a lot of you know this lifestyle. You, you spend your typical week juggling your schedules and activities and, and responsibilities, and you run from work to school to sports leagues to music lessons to dance lessons to shopping to church activities. And, you know, as he described it, especially in the suburbs, what he says is true, is that what that happens is that this lifestyle of juggling so many activities and responsibilities, what it does is it produces a bunch of little mini-communities in your life. Fellowships of people that you interact with in each one of those arenas. And so what you have over time is a work fellowship or a work community, a school community, a neighborhood community, a sports league community, the local gym community, the, the, the uh, neighborhood, the, the marketplace, the, the stores, wherever you shop. You have these little communities of people, maybe six, eight, ten different communities in your life. And what's more true in the suburbs than here, but is still true here, is that largely speaking, there's no overlap among those communities whole different set of people in each one of those different communities in your life. And so it raises the very valid and profound question, how much can you really invest in the relationships in each one of those communities? Obviously not very much. And what he makes the argument for in the book is that we need to make the community, the fellowship of the church of Jesus Christ, a much higher priority among those communities. Instead of balancing our time and our effort and our energy and our emotional and personal investment in all of those communities, that we give the priority to the church community. Why? So that we will develop the bowels of compassion towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. You know that. The people you spend the most time with are the people you care about the most. Experiential knowledge of one another is the only way to get there. And it takes investment. It takes sacrifice of time and energy and resources in other areas, other communities, other fellowships, so that you can invest in the compassion that we should have in a healthy church body. We talked about last week the fellowship that was in the early church right after the day of Pentecost, as it's described in the beginning of the book of Acts. Notice how their biblical identity produced real compassion in that community. It says, in chapter 2, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. They devoted themselves to both the teaching of the apostles, in other words, the word of God, and to the fellowship of believers. And you know what the result of that was? It very shortly after that says, there was no needy persons among them. See, that's what happens when God's people devote themselves to both the word of God and to fellowship is that what happens is they develop these strong feelings of concern and compassion for one another so that there are no needy persons in our midst. That's the first one. Put on compassion. Secondly, put on kindness. When you have that emotional bonding, concern for the needs of others in your fellowship, it produces acts of kindness. This word points to the actions and attitudes that flow out of compassion. We are to be a truly good people, especially in the eyes of the world. We should be so different in our kindness towards one another that we stand out from the world around us because they don't know the source of kindness. 
We are people who treat people the way we want to be treated, not the way that they deserve to be treated. And that's what kindness is. In Luke 6, 35, Jesus said, love your enemies. Again, he's not talking about the church here. He says, love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, for you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Don't treat people the way they deserve. Treat them the way that God has treated you. We are the family of God. And we want to be like our father and our older brother, Jesus Christ, because we're part of his family. And he is kind to the undeserving. We, too, should be kind to the undeserving. Thirdly, Paul says, put on humility. Put on humility. That doesn't mean sitting around thinking bad thoughts about yourself. It doesn't mean despising yourself. What humility means, biblically speaking, is seeing yourself as God sees you. Seeing yourself as God sees you. And when he looks at you, what he sees is a sinner who apart from his grace would be as evil as Satan. But because of his grace is a child of God and an heir of the kingdom. That's what God sees when he looks at you. Tim Keller defines humility in this way. I like this definition. He says, The essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It's thinking of myself less. In other words... It's not all about you anymore. You have the love of Christ. You have the kindness of Christ. And now you look to meet the needs of others. Paul defines fellowship in Philippians chapter 2, and he bases it in who Christ is. Again, it's our identity that makes us humble. Our sense of who we are makes us humble. And listen to how Paul says that that kind of understanding of who we are in Christ leads to humility in our fellowship. He says in Philippians 2, beginning in verse 3, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Be like Christ. And you will be humble in relation to your brothers and sisters in the church as well as those outside the church. And a wonderful, awesome thing happens when God's people are humble. Humble and dependent upon grace. An awesome thing happens. God dwells in their midst. That's what he promised to do. Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord, but this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Humble, contrite, and trembling at the word of God. That's where God delights to dwell. And where the presence of God is, there is just a a glowing, a spiritual glowing of the church, the, the light of Christ that draws people that are so lost in their alienation and shame and guilt and sin. Third thing, that, or fourth thing that Paul tells us to put on is meekness. Humility and meekness. Notice how these fit together, they dovetail. Humility and meekness. Meekness is interesting because the world doesn't respect meekness. The world will give lip service in terms of honoring 
to the depth that they can understand at what compassion and kindness and humility is. The world will speak highly of those traits, but I almost never hear the world speak highly of meekness. Meekness is stepping back and letting the other person go through the door first. Meekness is setting aside your career plans and goals and orientation in order to serve somebody else. The world sees that as weakness. I saw a quote of uh, the Beatitude just a few days ago. It reminded me of this. It says, the meek shall inherit the earth, if it's okay with everybody. (laughs) That's not what meekness is. The world doesn't understand true meekness. Matter of fact, just to show you how the world hates meekness, one of the shows that my wife and I will watch fairly often on television is Shark Tank. And there's a lot of good things about Shark Tank, a lot of things that I enjoy about it. But there is one important aspect, act, important aspect of it that will rot your soul if you're not careful. Because the underlying ethic of Shark Tank is anti-meekness. They will rip apart anybody who stands before them to promote a business or a product, you know, to get them to invest in it. If they'll rip you apart, if you are not committed to one thing and one thing only, making the most profit selfishly that you can possibly make, I saw, I really saw this come true, and about a year ago, I saw an episode where um, a young man came in, he actually said something that indicated he may well be a Christian, and he presented a product, and I don't remember what it was, but it was a product that he had invented, and he wanted to market, and he wanted the sharks to invest in it, and as he presented, they loved it. You could tell, they were all starting to line up to compete to get to be the investor and to, to partner with him in, in starting this business, but when they started to fight over him, he came out and said, I'm committed to one thing. He came from a small town, I think, in Georgia. And he said, I'm committed to keeping my business in my small town because the economy's bad and I want to help the community by keeping my business there. Not only did they immediately withdraw any sense of offering and getting involved with him, but they absolutely humiliated the guy. He said, you shouldn't even be in business if that's your attitude. But that's the kind of principle you live by. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is strength under control. Meekness is refusing to use your strengths, whether your gifts, your abilities, your personality. It's refusing to use those things for selfish purposes. Instead, submitting them to the will of God and using them for kingdom purposes. That's what meekness is. It's keeping your God-given strengths under control in submission to his will. In Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, it says, Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. Now when it says that, that you've got to dig in there. What, what does it mean? Moses was the most meek man. Look at what Moses accomplished as a strong leader. Yet he was the most meek man on the face of the earth in his day. Well, if you look at the context of that, in Numbers 12, what was happening, the reason that that is pointed out in Scripture is because he was being challenged at that point. His brother, Aaron, and his sister, Miriam, were saying he isn't fit to be the leader of God's people. They betrayed him. They stabbed him in the back. And you know how Moses responded when they did that? Numbers 12, verse 13. Moses cried to the Lord. This is is after God judged Miriam by striking her with leprosy for her betrayal, not only to Moses, but to him. He struck Miriam with leprosy, and this is how Moses responded. It says, O God... Please heal her. Please. I didn't paraphrase that. That's how it's written in the original. Oh God, please heal her. 
please. He pleaded with God from the depths of the compassion of his soul for someone who had just stabbed him in the back and betrayed him. Moses was the most meek man on the face of the earth. He, without, instead of lashing out or using his self, authority selfishly, he interceded for his opponent, even though it was his sister. You see, we follow Jesus Christ. We want to be like Christ. He's the one who said, I am gentle and lowly in heart. I am meek and humble is what that meant. And that's why when he stood before Pilate, when he was condemned as a sinner, even though he had never sinned, and was about to be nailed to the cross and to bear the wrath of God in our place, it says in Isaiah 53, 7, prophetically, speaking in advance, it says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was meek. He submitted his will to the will of the Father and thereby accomplished our salvation through meekness. Fifthly, Paul says, put on patience. When we hear patience, we tend to think of it as an individual trait. We don't think of it corporately most of the time. Patience is bearing up under some trial. And certainly it is that. But Paul's not talking about individual patience here. He's talking about patience within the body of believers, within the fellowship of the church. Because he goes on to say that we express it through fellowship by bearing with one another. In other words, being patient with a trial that is each other. You are a trial to me. I am a trial to you because we're still sinners by, but living by grace. But we are to be patient with one another. Put on patience. It means accepting one another unconditionally and putting up with each other's sins and putting up with each other's failures and each other's weaknesses. Because we understand that we are all in process. As we said before, in our humility, we recognize that apart from the grace of God, we'd be as evil as Satan. And we are a long way from being completely like Christ. We are in process, all of us. And God is so long-suffering towards us. He hates our sin far more than we hate our own sin, and certainly far more than we hate the sins of others. He hates our sin with a perfect hatred. And yet, he is patient with us every moment of every day. And so that's why Paul ties patience together with forgiveness. Notice the next thing he says. If one of you has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. You see, it's only in this fellowship of true believers that forgiveness can take place. I mean, real forgiveness, complete forgiveness. Because real forgiveness is based in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because sin is only dealt with in one of two ways. Sin is either dealt with 2,000 years ago at the cross when the Son of God, who was without sin, died and bore the wrath of God that our sins deserve in our place. Either sin is dealt with justly, completely, and fully there at the cross, or it's dealt with in the life of the sinner for eternity in hell. There's only two places that sin is dealt with. And for those who put their faith in Christ, our sin is put as far away as east is from west. We are made clean in the sight of a holy God. And we are then able to forgive others as we have been forgiven. We must forgive others the way that we've been forgiven. If God has forgiven us so much, how can we refuse to forgive each other? And so the cross becomes our standard for how 
great or many the offenses might be against us. Jesus said, forgive 70 times 70, which is meant to mean eternity, for eternity, not when you get to 490. Forgive the way you've been forgiven. You cannot outforgive God. I went to see a new movie came out a couple weeks ago called Selma. If you haven't seen it and you want to see a good movie, I recommend it. It's a good movie. And, of course, it covers the height of the civil rights movement in Alabama and focuses, of course, on Martin Luther King. I thought did a great job of presenting the flaws, the weaknesses of the sinner that was Martin Luther King, but also how God used him and did great things through his willingness to submit himself to what he felt to be the will of God. But as I watched the movie, I was reminded of another great man of God who doesn't get nearly the notoriety, nearly the press that Martin Luther King got. It was a man named John Perkins. Heard him speak a number of times at Geneva College. Good, good man of God, much more orthodox in his theology, so it's easier to, to uh, uh, champion him, so to speak, as a, as a civil rights leader. But John, um, he went through a lot of the same experiences that Martin Luther King went through. And in his writings, he talked about one time when he was arrested unjustly during a protest and was taken to a, a jail cell in a small rural backwoods southern town and racist cops started verbally abusing him and then started beating on him and and then and things I won't go into different ways of torturing him over the course of most of an of a t entire night and left him in a pool of blood in his cell reflecting back on the I want to read to you just a couple paragraphs of what John Perkins wrote of how he dealt with that he says, the spirit of God worked on me as I lay on that bed. An image formed in my mind, the image of the cross, Christ on the cross. It blotted out everything else in my mind. This Jesus knew what I had suffered. He understood and he cared because he had experienced it all himself. This Jesus, this one who had brought good news directly from God in heaven, had lived what he had preached. Yet he was arrested and falsely accused. Like me, he went through an unjust trial. He also faced a lynch mob and got beaten. But even more than that, he was nailed to a rough wooden planks and killed, killed like a common criminal. At the crucial moment, it seemed to Jesus that even God himself had deserted him. The suffering was so great, he cried out in agony. He was dying, but when he looked at that mob who had lynched him, he didn't hate them, he loved them. He forgave them, and he prayed to God to forgive them. Father, forgive these people, for they don't know what they're doing. His enemies hated, but Jesus forgave. I couldn't get away from that. It's a profound, mysterious truth, Jesus' concept of love overpowering hate. I may not see its victory in my lifetime, but I know it's true. I know it's true because it happened to me. On that bed, full of bruises and stitches, God made it true in me. He washed my hatred away and replaced it with a love for the white man in rural Mississippi. I felt strong again, stronger than ever. What doesn't destroy me makes me stronger. I know it's true because it happened to me. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. You see, it's only the church that really knows how to forgive because it's only the church that understands the cross. And our fellowship must reflect the gospel in the way that we forgive one another. We are patient with one another because we're able to forgive through the grace of Christ. Which brings me to the last, and just in a moment, to mention the last for this morning. We'll get to the second half of this passage next week. But the last spiritual clothing or spiritual fruit that we are to put on is it's love. Paul couldn't conclude the list without tying it all together by love. He says in verse 14 
And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. He's saying all these spiritual apparel, all these spiritual fruit, they won't stick, they won't stay together, they won't hold together unless it's held together by real love. The love that Christ has taught us, that Christ has shown us, the love that the world doesn't know. The world doesn't know what love is because love is really all about the cross and what it represents. Paul says elsewhere, love is patient, kind, not arrogant, long-suffering. So all these other fruit are meaningless unless they're motivated by the love of Christ. I did a study of 1 John a few years ago, and John, in 1 John, he talks about love all the time, and it was important to me in doing that study to figure out what is his definition of love? What does he mean by love? And this is the definition I came up with, and it's been really helpful to me ever since. According to the 1 John, and really in all the writings of John, this is what love means, and I think all in Scripture. Finding your joy and satisfaction in helping others to prosper in the eyes of God. Finding your joy and satisfaction in helping others to prosper in the eyes of God. I throw that last phrase on there because helping others to prosper is as God sees it, not necessarily as they see it. Because sometimes you have to do things that your brother and sister in Christ don't want you to do if you're really going to love them. You want them to prosper in God's eyes according to his standards. And so you're you're able in your humility to forget about yourself and in the compassion that, that Christ gives you to really seek to love others, to build them up, and you find your joy and satisfaction in it. That's what real love is. Jesus said in John 13, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's because we look like him. And sinners that are being saved by grace are drawn to Christ. And the more that our fellowship is a culture of grace, the more we look like him, the more people will be drawn to this fellowship. Our goal for this fellowship is to make disciples who make disciples who create a culture of grace. That's our goal. That's what we're working for. doesn't matter how big we get. doesn't matter how many programs we have. doesn't matter what community impact we have. That's our goal, is to be a culture of grace. It begins with devotion to God's word. It begins with the gospel. It begins with us being in Christ. And as we drink deeply and continually from those waters of life, we will bear the fruit of compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, and love. I hope that you're all rejoicing as being part of the process as we as a leadership commit ourselves to build that culture of grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for giving us this ideal. And we know that our fellowship falls far short of that beautiful picture but Lord, I pray that your grace would continue to work in us, begin with the leadership, and work throughout this body of believers. And all true gospel-preaching, scripture-based fellowships, I pray, Lord, that Christ's light might shine brightly because the world desperately needs the love and community and fellowship that we share here. We pray in Christ's name, amen.